Well, because if you take the idea of sheep without a shepherd, I mean, you're looking yeah. like it's it's not a, it's not your fault that you're emaciated, your your wool's all naughty, your your sheep little sheep teeth are falling out. You know, like you haven't. Welcome to the Stand Firm podcast. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky. Here, as per usual, with Matt Kennedy, Church of the Good Shepherd Anglican in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Koch of Christ Church Anglican in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. How are you guys doing today? Wonderful. You're great, Nick. Glad to hear it. Uh, I'm going to say the four words now that I know that you're all looking forward to, which is happy Bobby Bonilla Day. No response to that? Matt Kennedy, you live in New York. You don't know Bobby Bonilla Day? I Yeah, I just live here. <laughs> I'm trying to build I think up. I have one of his baseball cards. Yeah, right? baseball. There you go. I'm yeah, trying to build it. up our fan base with the folks who live at the intersection of <laughs> Anglican theology and professional sports contractual obligations. <laughs> so Bobby Bonilla was a player for the New York Mets. And in the year 2000, he had about $6 million left on his contract. But the Mets wanted to get rid of him. But they didn't want to pay him the $6 million in one lump sum, so they made an agreement to defer the money for 10 years to start paying him in 2011, but to pay him about a million dollars every year for 25 years. $25 million over 25 years every July 1st. And so it is July 1st as we record this. Happy Bobby Bonilla Day. They didn't want him that badly. The best part of the story is – the reason they wanted to defer the six million and turn it into twenty-five is that they invested the six with Bernie Madoff. <laughs> so, didn't work out for the Mets right. as usual. That's but the right. other thing that July first is <laughs> is the day after Pride Month ends. You know, the month when the world celebrates one of the seven deadly sins. And that's really the toughest thing about Pride Month for me, the sadness of seeing so many professing Christian people celebrating something that's outside of the Lord's created order, something that he has called good, and then using this overtly sinful word, pride, to describe that celebration. So it brings up a question for me, one that I thought we'd talk about today, about Christian error. I'm sure none of us would claim to be error-free, either in our theology or our faith, or any area in our lives, but are there errors that are so serious that they put a person outside of what it means to be a Christian? Are there people who think they are Christians, but who actually aren't? What's the line between a Christian who is wrong about something and someone who's not a Christian at all? So Matt, I wanted to start with this. What is a Christian? Great question. And I think at the, at the very basic level, we would have to say that a Christian is someone who has placed his or her full trust in the person and work of Christ as he is revealed in the scriptures. And that's an important caveat because, because uh, all kinds of people who follow various cults would be willing to say, yes, I place my trust and belief in Christ, but the Christ they place their trust and belief in is not the Christ in the scriptures. So a Christian is someone who's placed his or her trust full reliance upon the person and work of Christ. Now we got to be careful though, because there's only one entity, one being in the cosmos who knows who has done that in, in truth. And that's God himself. And you can know about, I think you can know about yourself, but you can't know with surety about anyone else. So, so that means as a church, when we as a church describe a Christian, we have to, we have to say, yes, it's someone who, who professes 
to trust in Jesus Christ, both his work and his person, as revealed in the um, revealed in the scriptures, and that includes, of course, if you trust in his work and his person, you you believe what he says, and you understand that he, being God incarnate, also is the one who stands behind the words of the prophets and the apostles, and so believing in him means receiving his word. I mean, there's a whole bunch of things, the caveats to go along with that, but in an ecclesiastical sense, I think we're obligated um, to take someone's someone at his or her word, if they profess to be a believer, until or unless something happens, that person does something or says something that would call into question that profession. And then, you know, there's, <clears throat> depending, depending on what your relationship is, is with that person, if you're that person's pastor or that person is a teacher, a public figure of some sort, that's reason enough, I think, to begin to call into question um, the profession and I think at the end of the day, there are some who, there are many, <laughs> history is full of them, who have, who have lived lives and made declarations that set them so far outside the bounds of what has been revealed that we would have to say that person is not a, is, is not a Christian. Yes. Not making any judgment, because we don't know. Um, about the eternal destination of a person's soul, but, but definitely making a judgment about that person's place within the covenant community. So it's more, it's more a statement about whether or not they're, quote, on the team than whether or not their eternal soul is safe. Yeah, I mean, so the, the, one of the controversies that comes to mind recently, well, that's not recently, how long ago was this when, when John Piper said, farewell, John Bell, that was like 2011, I think, or not oh, John, Rob, Rob, Rob Bell. Bell, Rob Bell, yeah, uh, 2011, I think, um, and he was basically saying, look, with Rob Bell's decision to speculate that hell is not an eternal state for people who have rejected Christ um, during their lifetimes, that he had stepped outside the bounds of the visible church and must mm. no longer be considered uh, be considered a Christian. But I mean, do I know, or does does John Piper know whether or not God and His eternal sovereignty has determined to re rescue Rob Bell out of that rebellion? I don't know. Right. Uh, we, we can't we can't talk about souls. We can talk about the ecclesiastical boundaries of the church. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point, and one that, you know, we see reiterated throughout the New Testament. I mean, Jesus' own admonition that you're, I'm sending you as sheep among wolves, you know, that there will be, uh, he looked at them as sheep without a shepherd, and then we look at the um, the admonition throughout almost every letter of the New Testament in some way, shape, or form is a warning against false teachers, against infiltrators, against people who have um, denied aspects of the faith, and, you know, I think there's a, there's, that really points to something important about what James said, not all of you should aspire to be teachers, you know, because there's a double yoke of responsibility, you know, about these public um, teachers who profess um, something that stands outside of the bounds of, of the most generous orthodoxy you could, you could imagine. I mean, I would like to hope, you know, hope to, as Anglicans, you know, we do have, for better or worse, a broad tent with respect to our um, sort of creedal commitments, but we still have commitments. I mean, there still is a boundary to this tent. And I think that the, the, the sad part for me is that you see, I mean, I run in this to my own ministry, is that people will throw back in my face um, teaching that they've heard at other churches from, quote unquote, ordained ministers that contradict what I'm teaching them about any manner of things. And, you know, I find myself in, in somewhat of a conundrum there because it's like, well, you know, he says, she says, or mm -hmm. he says, he says, as the case might be. 
And I think that's where, when it comes to ecclesial discipline, as it were, I think I'm glad, like, for instance, with ACNA, like, it eventually, bending came to breaking. And so there was, you know, what's historically understood as these levels of, of agreement, you know, first order, second order, third order, you know, like first order disagreements cannot be held in the same communion, you know, if not even the same faith, you know, like is, is there a Trinity? Is there a, you know, even you just go down the Nicene Creed. I mean, is there a virgin birth? Did God create ex nihilo? Does it, I mean, these are, these are significant creedal confessions that have been, that have been constitutive of the Christian confession since the beginning. But then, you know, you go second order, like believer's baptism. I mean, you could argue, so you're blue in the face, but I'm not going to break communion with someone who says, I'm going to wait till my kid gets confirmed, um, you know, in order to get baptized. I mean, that's a second order. And then, you know, you can go down the list, but I right. think that, that the problem for us, at least at former Episcopalians, Anglicans, is that the categories of things that were first order or second order, you know, eventually there seemed to be nothing in the first order category at all, except for like, I'm not an atheist. It's like, this is essentially where I land the plane. <laughs> well, I, I don't know. Like, I mean, John Spong was kind of... Well, he's he was, a perfect example. Yeah. He's a perfect he was, example. And that's how there. I was introduced. I think I said that before. That's how I was introduced to the Episcopal Church. Like, I was given his book in the Sociology of Religion class in college, and I said, what in the world <laughs> is this? And then thankfully, you know, Peter Moore, a blessed memory, he commissioned a book uh, called Can a Bishop Be Wrong by a number of scholars that was very influential. And sort of that was the kind of dialogue that, that I think is necessary within the church. And, you know, there were no sh- lost love between that disagreement. But I think towards your point, Matt, I think the hope was, and I know a lot of the authors of that book, Can a Bishop Be Wrong? Their hope was for, for loving correction. You know, it wasn't an antagonistic cancel culture as we have now today. It was it was a, an appeal, you know, right. let's come reason together, brother. And, 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 and I think that's, that's the idea behind the continued dialogue and disagreement is that from a place of charity, it's that I'd like to be corrected and, and lovingly corrected and also hopefully be part of lovingly correcting others to the end that people would continue to be able to persevere in the faith. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think you're, uh, you're right about the, I think you said this mission in the beginning, that the new Testament is full of, it's full of this concept. I mean, just, just the disciplinary process that Jesus gives us in Matthew 18 um, indicates that at the end of that process, if there's no repentance, then what, what you treat that person like a, tax collector and a sinner as if that person wasn't isn't really a believer now again not making any judgment about that person's soul but that person then has to be placed outside of uh, of the community i remember we had a at our church we had a woman who was up until that point i thought she was one of the more faithful christians i'd ever met she'd been married for 47 years just decided one day that she was going to leave her husband uh divorce him and shack up with this other guy. <laughs> she was in her, she was in her seventies, right? So, <laughs> my goodness. So we, you know, we, we did everything we could say, so, hey, look, you need to, you need to go to counseling. You need to try and work this out. She refused. We would show her the scriptures where what she was doing was, was in violation of what Christ said. We went all the way through the disciplinary process. And at the end of the day, we had to say, okay, well, you, you can't come to the table and you can come in and listen to the preaching. That's fine. You can't come to the table, and we're going to have to treat you as if you're outside a community now because you're you're unrepentant. And I think that's ultimately at the end of the day where the line is generally drawn is is open defiance against the revealed word of God is not consistent with a person who is 
professing to be a believer in Jesus Christ. And Jesus said it himself in John chapter 8, verse 31, if you are my disciple, you will abide in my word. And, and if you read that text, it's fascinating because he's talking to people who had just said, oh, we believe in you. We, we trust you. And then he says, okay, well, if you're really my disciples, you're going to abide in my word. And then he says, and no truth will set you free. And then what do they say? Hey, wait a minute. We've never been slaves of anybody. That's right. What do you mean? What are you calling us slaves for? We've never been slaves. And then there begins this, this adversarial kind of conversation where it turns out they, they were not on board with Jesus in a true way. They were on board with some of the things he was saying, but not with him as a person. And they were not willing to submit themselves to his work. And to, isn't that really how we all, in a sense, fluctuate all throughout our lives? There's that one sentence in uh, Mark chapter 9, when Jesus casts the demon out of the young child, and the child's father says, I believe, help my unbelief. And I really feel like one of the things that people who are listening to this conversation will will have in their own heads is the times in their lives when they have struggled, when they have felt at odds, when they have heard something that rubbed them the wrong way or something like that. And sort of how, how do we comfort people who are, help me, help me believe, yeah. but I'm worried that I don't believe in the right way. I think there's a, ch- a chasm of difference, a wide chasm, yeah, a chasm between someone who says, I'm really struggling with this, help me believe. Mm. Yes. And someone who says, this is a monster God, or uh, this, is, this commandment is the product of a primitive culture, or this, uh, these words of Jesus are really wicked according to our understanding of the way yes. morality works today. That's, that's different than someone saying, hey, I, I really, you know, I'm struggling with same-sex attraction and I, I don't want to disobey Jesus, but I don't understand how this works. Can you please help me? That's a bad, <laughs> we're talking talking two very different types of person and two different stances toward, uh, toward Christ. One is submissive, wanting to trust, wanting to obey, knowing himself or herself to be a, a sinner and something's wrong. And the other is standing over the scriptures, standing over Christ as judge and arbiter. When we see this happen in, in interactions with Jesus himself, I mean, time and time again, you know, there was one of two people that came to him, you know, either humble, contrite, and genuinely inquisitive, or people who he knew in his, his heart were trying to trap him or trick him or, or um, you know, otherwise mislead him or, or get, him, get him in trouble. And I think, I think that, you know, again, we can't judge a person's heart, um, you know, but you can get a sense um, of where they're coming from when they're when they're talking about their doubts, fears, and anxieties with respect to the faith, and I think that there's a faithful confession of of ignorance. You know, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And you you sort of throw yourself before the you know, like the Apostle Paul in Romans ten ten eleven. You know, the end of his long excursus on how could God's promises to the Jews be fulfilled when it seems like it's not been fulfilled in light of their rejection of Christ. And he ends up finally just falling down. I picture him like writing and falling down, just saying how unsearchable and majestic and and glorious are the is the majesty of, of God, you know, and the mystery of God. And I think there's a there's a faithful um, confession in that that certainly wrestles with the with the faith once for all delivered to the saints, which is not the same thing as willfully leading people um, confessing um, you know something contrary to the faith once delivered, and it, particularly with respect to these to these leaders, you know I think that it's it's frightening for me. I mean that's what I tell people all the time. Like I 
I, um, you know, really considered for a while not getting ordained, um, not because I didn't think that I, um, well, because I actually considered what I was asking the Lord to give me the responsibility to do, which was to speak for him, to lead people in their in their devotional lives and ultimately be the person that someone pointed to and said, well, this is what I believe about God because of what this guy told me. It's like, that's, that's, that's no small thing. And so far be it from me to just on a whim of my sort of personal sort of feelings on any given issue, um, knowing how many things I've had personal feelings wrong about in my life to say, well, that doesn't seem right to me. So I think we'll just get rid of that part of it. I mean, I mean, heaven forbid, I mean, mega noito, God forbid. Make a great point about leader, the distinction between leaders and, and just regular parishioners. Um, I don't mean just like they're less than, I mean, uh, but there's, a, there's an important distinction there between someone who's charged with teaching, who's charged with upholding, yes. upholding God's word. And when you look at the way Jesus and the apostles deal with people who are sinning and just struggling and caught up in sin and the way they deal with teachers who are teaching falsely, you see yes. a really big difference. Invariably, you see a lot of compassion on the part of Christ and the apostles for people who are... Well, because if you take the sin. idea of sheep yeah. without a shepherd, I mean, you're looking yeah. like it's it's not a, it's not your fault that you're emaciated, your your wool's all naughty, <laughs> your, your sheep, little sheep teeth are falling out, you know, like you haven't, you've got sheep rickets, right. um, you know, and it's like... But the wolf who's like, devouring you, that yeah. there's a there's a problem, right? So, that, so then the, the, the leader, um, take, take Galatians chapter one, you know, Paul doesn't deal with those in who have come to the Galatian churches adding to the gospel by saying, Hey, you know, these are our brothers and you know, they just have a different view of what the gospel is than we do. Sure. And they're just a, not very much of a difference. Hey, they agree about Jesus. They agree about this. They agree about that. They just have a, you know, just get circumcised. That's all. So we can, we can talk to them. No, he says, he says, if anyone brings you the gospel, they are accursed. They're anathema. Yes, yes. That's not the language you use for somebody you consider a fellow Christian. Well, but Matt, you're getting to the heart of it, though, is because the last, I don't know, 150, 200 years of sort of Western Christian um, reflection has not been run rigorously through the scriptures, you know, for all sorts of reasons. We I mean, higher criticism and sort of skepticism and then the yeah. rise of sort of subjective um, authorities mm -hmm. and things. But, you know, as soon as you stopped reading the like the Corinthian correspondence, for instance, as a um, illustration of early church discipline and early church sort of interaction. Um, well, then, you know, then you're just left with, well, I don't know, the guy seems nice enough. You know, I mean, I know he's sleeping with his mother-in-law, but I mean, I mean, come on now, you know, who hasn't you, you without sin cast the first stone, you know, and it's like, well, that's a pretty big stone. Uh, you know, like I'm not gonna, but, but I mean, and that's this, and you know, and I'm, and I'm speaking as like a recovering one of these people, I have to say, because I, um, you know, and we've shared this before, but, you know, I think that the dual responsibilities of me when I, I became a rector and a father in like a period of three months and the dual weights of those responsibilities crashed on me um, like a ton of bricks. And it was, it took me a year or two to even just kind of come like pick, you know, I picture like uh, Magnus von Samuelson and the Atlas stone, right. And the uh, world's strongest man, which is an amazing thing to watch, but um, you know, like dropping it on this thousand pound weight and like it just sort of stumbling around for a good six mm -hmm. months to a year. And Nick was part of that with me. And I feel like, uh, Liza and I in particular have spent the past, I don't know, four years of our lives kind of rebuilding a confidence or having the Lord rebuild in our own lives, a confidence and a trust 
in um, in the whole perspicuity of his word and the in the in the inspiration and the in the trustworthiness of it in a way that you know I'm ashamed to say it to a certain degree I, I I would have professed but I didn't I didn't live and I and I um, and I'm grateful for you know kind rebukes towards that end <laughs> and ultimately um, hopefully a longer you know the rest of my life will be marked much more by a a, a robust fidelity to that than, than perhaps it has had been in the past. I think that the Judaizers in Galatians 1 are a perfect example of this, right? That St. Paul doesn't go on and on about how we know that they're hellbound and that he just says, don't listen to them. Yeah. He says, they're not preaching the gospel. They're preaching a different one. You need to understand what the Lord has said to you through me that's the truth, and that's sort of the end of the story. So in a, in a sense, we're creating a faculty of people who are trustworthy proclaimers, and if somebody's got a different message, we're not saying, like, we need to shoot that person or we need, we need to fire them into the sun or we need to say and make sure everybody knows that they're evil, but what we are going to say is they can't teach at this school because right. we've been given a message that is – the real gospel. Or well, they can't Paul. preach in my church or they right. can't preach, you know, they're not going to, um, I mean, Paul even says in Philippians one, he says, look, if you preach the gospel, some people preach, preach the gospel out of selfish ambition or out of gain. You know, he talks about other ways to even preach the gospel. He's fine with it's when someone's actually not preaching the gospel is when he says, you know, I wish that they would go emasculate themselves, you know, no small words. It's like, so, I think the, tone, so the tone police, the tone police didn't get to uh, Galatians soon enough before it was um, stamped with authority. You were saying, Matt, I didn't interrupt. Uh, no, I was, I mean, your the Galatian, um, the Judaizers in Galatia, the Paul does say with apostolic authority, let them be anathema. Um, I think we can say more like with, with JD and with uh, Nick, we can say, okay, this person's not in, in the ecclesiastical right and our that, ecclesiastical club we that's anathema say, from the church not from christ well right we can say that we i think paul could say these well, guys are going yeah, to hell paul we could <laughs> we couldn't because we're not you know we're not we're not apostles we don't have we're not the, we're not the mouthpieces of christ in that in that sense sure. um but then you know there's also in addition in addition to this necessity to do what you're saying nick and, and kind of create this tell who's licensed to teach and who's not um there's also like kind of the negative responsibility on top of that which you see in second john where where John tells either a, a, a house church or maybe a, a woman who, who hosts Christians who are, work, who are traveling through her town, that if anyone runs ahead of apostolic teaching and doesn't bring the teaching of Christ, and that generative of could be the teaching that Christ gave or the teaching about Christ, I'm not quite sure what that is, um, then don't even give that person a greeting. Because mm. to greet that person, that's, that's huge in the first century, not to give a person a greeting. Because if you greet that person, John says, then you participate in that person's wicked work. That's mm. huge. So, so I, I don't see how the Christian who says, yeah, I don't agree with uh, Rob Bell or, or maybe more, more recently, um, I don't agree with Jen Hatmaker or whoever it might be, but you know, I wouldn't want to say that person's not a Christian. I think that person runs afoul of Second John because mm. it, that person greets the, these false teachers as if they're true and in so doing participates in their wicked work, blinds the eyes of those who listen to them. So I think it's a responsibility not just to um, not just to not follow 
and affirm false teachers, but also to, to, to truly make it publicly clear this person cannot be, I will not refer to this person as a Christian minister. I will not refer to this person as a, as a, as a, as a member of the, of the household of, of God in a, an ecclesiastical sense. Well, this might be a good time to revisit what J.D. said earlier about first, second, and third tier issues, because in researching a future episode of this very podcast, I came across this fight about the nature of the Trinity and the accusations going on in that argument had to do with fidelity to the Nicene creedal definition of what the Trinity is and how the Trinity works. But it didn't seem like anybody in that conversation was de-churching anybody or saying anybody wasn't a Christian, even though they were talking about what the Nicene Creed itself said about the Trinity. So what are these first tier issues that we need to be talking about in these terms? Well, I think that's a good, I mean, that's a good segue, not segue, but I think you're right, that they're to recognize um, sort of the qualifications for elders. I'm trying to draw these two lines together, Matt, where you're talking about the teachers and um, first order issues, because one of the one of the admonitions Paul gives to Timothy for qualifications of deacons in this case, um, in First Timothy, was that they would hold the mysteries of the faith with good conscience. You know, I keep coming back to that, particularly with respect to something like the Trinity, because the Trinity is nothing more, nothing less, of course, than a great mystery. You know, I mean, this is a the three in one and the the one person and three beings and all. Of, I mean, one being and three persons. All of this <laughs> Say amazing. Right. Right. That's right. Or else that's right. Be canceled. Um, you know, the Athanasian Creed is an amazing thing to read. You know, Augustine's sort of seven point um, statement on the Trinity. I mean, these are nothing if not a mystery. And yet um, that is constitutive of our faith. That is a first order. You know, it's the first of our 39 articles. It is the first confession that we do not believe in um, tritheism. We, not, we do. We are monotheistic, but it's one God and three people. And if you can't um, to a certain degree, even in good faith, hold that mystery with your conscience that there is a truth to that that transcends our limitations and yet is, is, is in fact what has been revealed. And then understand the, the reasons behind that to the, to the best that we can, the reasons why we're not monotheist in the sense of a Muslim or we're not tritheist in the sense of a, uh, well, a tritheist or a pantheist, that we actually believe that the inner workings of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit um, as revealed in the scriptures, as has been poured over for 2,000 plus years now, is a, an important and constitutive aspect of the faith, well, then you, sh- you could be a Christian, perhaps, um, you know, if you kind of kept it to yourself, if you like, if you crossed your fingers, maybe like in your own queue, like I'm not going to, I'm not sitting there with my little drone, although someone is watching you at all times. But, but if you're a minister, that's what you sign up for, you know, and that's been the qualification from the beginning. And I think, um, so with respect to first order doctrines, I mean, I think particularly from an Anglican perspective, you know, we don't have confessions. It is right to be said, although when people say that I back away, I get a little nervous because I'm afraid of what they're going to say about the great mystery. You know, it's like we actually don't believe in anything, um, you know, except, except the blessed Eucharist. Um, but, um, but, but I would say that some bounded form of the creedal, um, you know, well, we have our formularies, the creeds. I mean, I think that in particular, the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, and the Athanasian Creed, I think if you, if you can't sort of expound, acknowledge, and affirm um, those three creeds to some degree as a minister, then I think we could, we could safely say that you and I would be preaching something different. Um, I don't know. I and mean, that's what I would, that's how I would argue. And I mean, I think this is, it reminds me of that. Um, I don't know if I saw it a couple of years ago, Nicholas Kristoff interviewed um, 
uh, Tim Keller on Christmas yeah. Eve about, it was called Pastor, Am I a Christian? And, and Nicholas Kristoff, who I, I think is an interesting man and has some, um, obviously uh, he's thoughtful. And he talks about his wrestling with, for instance, the virgin birth, you know, and sort of some of the miracles of Jesus. And he wants to have Jesus as a good person, but has some difficulties with the supernatural aspect. And Tim Keller um, was polite, but ultimately did land the plane and said, well, what you are saying does in fact fall outside the bounds of sort of traditional <laughs> confessional Christianity, which is a very polite way of saying uh, no, um, or at least not as far as I could can affirm. And I think, um, I think that's why the, the necessity for our, our understanding of, of authority in the Anglican church is bequeathed to us by hooker is so important, you know, scripture, tradition, and reason. I think that we have scripture is the primary, you know, anything that can be obviously proven or disproven by scripture, article six and article 20 says this, um, we don't have to believe, or we have to believe like this is just straightforward and we can argue about that and you can go learn original languages and we can have commentaries and, um, but for 2000 years, that's our authority. And in tradition, we can see how that's been developed over over 2,000 years. And we have a great um, freedom to read the church fathers, read the various reformers, read, you know, Thomas Aquinas. I mean, go read, I mean, John Paul II and his Theology of the Body was amazingly instructive for me with respect to um, male-female human relations. And roll all of that in under the authority of Scripture and then finally take our reason and apply it. And I think that's what comes to the first, second, and third order discourses, is that when we find ourselves at a place where what you're saying seems to bring you out of the great stream of scripture, tradition, and and reason, or at least scripture and tradition, and, and applying solely reason, well, then we need to, we need to speak more clearly, uh, because we might be at a place where we need to break fellowship. You know, and that's, and that's what's happened with, with the Anglican Church. We were living, we're in the middle of having lived through one of these epochs. Like, the Anglican Church did not do this for 450 years, basically, and now has. Um, and it's in part because finally the bounds of Scripture, tradition, reason were reached. You mean splitting with the Episcopal Church in America? Yeah, yeah, in particular with respect to the question of God's purpose and design for human sexuality. I mean, that was a, a evidently a watershed first level um, discourse because yeah. not necessarily because of simply what it was, but because of what it pointed to yeah. with respect to how many other things we disagreed on when you get to that point. Well, I mean, I also think what it is, I mean, you know, one of the things that you often hear from those who think we should not have split is, well, you, you, you are placing sexuality apart from every other sin as if it's some kind of special thing. And in my response to that is yes, because that's what, that's what Paul does in first Corinthians chapter six. That's precisely what he does. It's you, you, you're, you're, you, every other sin the sin outside your body, the sexual sin is a sin against your body, which is temple of the Holy Spirit. It's a special, unique kind of blasphemy that you don't do in any other way. Um, and secondly, along with that, I mean, one of the, Paul has a list of, of vices in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 6, uh, 9, that, that, you know, you have a lot of things in there, drunkenness, general sexual morality, and then um, are synecoitus, men who want to have sexual relations with men and those who allow them to. And he, what does he say at the end of that vice list? Those who do these things will not enter the kingdom of heaven. I mean, I don't know, I don't know how else you just define a first order issue yeah. than, than teaching that somebody can do one of those things unrepentantly without, without any, not, not talking Romans 7 kind of, oh, I do what I don't want to do and I don't know, but a bit unrepentant, full bore, defiant, acting in that way, and be blessed by God, I don't see how that 
kind of teaching doesn't immediately set someone outside the bounds of the church because yeah. you are actively leading uh, the Lord's little ones into sin and into hell, actually. Yeah. No, I think you're exactly right. And I think it goes, you know, there's a couple of levels to that too, because there's some clear speaking to it. I mean, people ask, you know, where, where does it say in the Bible about all these things, you know, that people fight about? And it's like, well, you know, let's sit down and talk because we're not, we're not making these things up out of thin air. You know, I didn't just add to the list of vices and, and prohibitions that the apostle Paul and uh, the new Testament speaks about. But beyond that, you know, I've heard it said once, it's like when we, when we get down to the fundamental purposes and, as it were, sort of ontological realities of men and women in the world, you know, the Bible also speaks to this, is that God is neither male nor female, but male and female in our image, let us create them. And that there's something both that points to his, his authorship, his existence, his purpose, and his good pleasure that is represented in the differentiation between men and women and the way that they then relate. That's been the message of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And to sort of augment or change that, which we also have att attestation to, you know, which is what the prophets railed against in the Old Testament, which is what Jesus spoke to when asked about marriage and divorce in the New Testament. When Paul talked about the deviancy, none of this was outside the bounds of redemption, but it all pointed to a deviation from God's plan of, of creation and now ultimately redemption in Christ. And so, you know, it's like someone once said jokingly, like, you know, when you disagree about this, that's fine. You just also disagree about the nature of God, the nature of sin, the nature of reality, the question of eternity, you know, the purpose and work of the Bible, uh, the nature of the church and ultimately redemption. So other than that, you know, I guess we're, I right. guess we're on the same page. And so it's like, that we may not be in the same church. Like we just may not be, um, you know, I'm not going to pick at your church. I'm not going to try to shut you down and get your tax exempt status taken away. Um, but, but I'm not going to necessarily want to be in communion uh, with you, which is, which is actually has, is what is the case now. I think we would all agree that the, the sheepfold stands open, right? We are, we are proclaiming forgiveness for sinners. We are hopeful that people will hear the truth, uh, repent of sin, and be welcomed home. That Jesus leaves the 99 to find the one is still true. And um, that is our fondest hope for ourselves and for everybody else who is um, wrong. We, we would say with St. Paul that we are the, the foremost of sinners and that we are as in need of that seeking shepherd as anybody else. But um, we would hope to be receptive to a, a biblical rebuke should we need one and um hopefully our loving brothers and sisters in christ would want to welcome us home too amen i guess i would just add that um a lot of, a lot of this conversation gets so convoluted because of the kind of the cultural deprivation going on so this is not just a, a theological discussion regarding the bounds of human sexuality according to the scriptures the reason it's such a roiling issue is because we're living in, a, in the midst of a, the Western context in which, in which the Judeo-Christian value system has been completely eroded. Um, and so people come into our churches who just don't, don't get it. And, yeah. and they may have heard maybe a preacher on online. They say, hey, you know, maybe I'll give this Christianity a, a shot and they'll walk into our churches. And then, and then they hear uh, yeah. uh, say things like, look, you, marriage is between a man and a woman. Um, there's no sexual, sexual relationships outside that. And immediately their heads go to, or their minds go to hate, 
hate, yeah. hate, yeah. hate. Because they've yeah, just I'm... walked out of the temple to another god. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And that contrast is going to get so much more uh, sharp. Well, nothing happened to the Apostle Paul when he went into these cities preaching yeah. that. I mean, so we shouldn't worry about that. We shouldn't, we shouldn't worry about it. No big deal uh, when, when people stopped buying their Playboy magazines or their little purple statues and uh, started going to church. Uh, nobody got mad. So, uh, but, uh, but, you know, madam, I think this is what, again, not be somewhat lighthearted about that. I mean, kind of gallows humor. But, but at the same time, that is the model that we've been given is that the Apostle Paul you know, um, argued and debated and persuaded people out of love for them. You know, it wasn't out of like a sort of a, you know, evangelist notch on his Bible or something. It was, it was, um, he had seen the truth. He had, he had known being lost and he had been redeemed. And so throughout the rest of his life, you know, in every letter, he was quick to qualify, you know, both imitate me as I imitate Christ, you know, don't do this, do that. Don't, but Hey, don't forget, like I'm, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. You know, I mean, he was always, I mean, Romans 7 is a wonderful addition that he didn't have to put in there until, you know, you wonder like he's writing in Romans 6 and he's like, how, how can you who've died to sin still live in it? You know, don't you know that you've been baptized into Christ's death? You who've been raised, you know, you can imagine him writing that. And then maybe like I've been in a situation like that too and saying, you know what? maybe I'll qualify this a little bit with some humanity here and like maybe give a little bit of deeper insight into what this really, the pathos of what this looks like, because I can say both of these things at the same time that I inside my mind with the power by the power of the spirit, I fight for the good and want to live for the law of God. And yet I see in my members, the law of the flesh, you know, warring against it and who will deliver me from this body of death. Like that is a very Christian thing to say. And I think, and of course he names who will deliver him. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. That's right. That's right. Rob Bell. (laughs) God bless him. Um, Well, listen, you guys, it's about time for us to wrap up. This is clearly a conversation that we're going to keep having as um, Matt suggested this conflict with the other churches in the world the churches that are not called churches is just going to get more and more sharp Um, we are out of time this week we have not said all that there is to be said so no angry emails but you actually can email us now we have set up a mailbag we make no promises about actually replying to emails i don't know about you guys but i pretty much promise not to reply (laughs) but if you do have a topic an idea for a future episode, please send it to us at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com. That's mailbag at standfirminfaith.com. We'd love your input. Thanks as always for listening. Thanks to Matt Kennedy, JD Koch. I'm Nick Land, and we'll be back next week. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. 